0: Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, would like to thank Charlie K. and Casey Knopp for their ongoing support as patrons through Patreon. Do two shows, yo? Hey, no, I I'm, I'm putting this trust in the episode, by the way. Just trust yourself.
1: This <laughs> is shoulder it's just,
0: of Orion. Be confident, Atreyu. Be confident.
1: <laughs> this is going to be in our outtakes. <laughs> no, you know, so. this is going in the episodes.
0: I'm not sorry, anybody. I'm not sorry. We, have, we do two shows. Plus, I'm thinking about a third show for something completely unrelated. I got a lot going in my head. Anyways, <laughs> welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Alien Saga Podcast. I'm kidding. Um. <laughs> so, here we are again and we're this is another reaction episode and we're talking about Blade Runner 2049 and how it continues to impact us and we've seen the film multiple times all of us I think. Ryan, you saw it again today. I don't know how many times that has been for you. Um, I've seen it uh, four times. two, yeah. a whopping two. okay, <laughs> that counts as multiple. Patrick, yeah. Patrick, seen it about fifteen times. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Scientists was still tabulating. No, you know, I was actually, this is not a joke. I was going to go tonight, and I said, no, no, shoulder of Orion needs more content. We got to get together and record. I'm not going to go tonight, and so I'm going tomorrow night uh, instead to make up for it. Nice, okay, awesome. Because this movie, I, I mean, I I am like filled with dread. That I'm somehow not going to see this movie enough times while it's in theaters. Yeah. Because you know yeah. this is one of those things that in five or ten years we're gonna go, Oh man, I really wish I could just like walk into a movie theater and see this. But you know yeah. it was born for that format, you know.
0: Yeah.
2: So Jamie, how was how was the fiftieth time you've seen it since the uh compared to the forty time? The hundred and second
0: time. My hundred and eleventh birthday. Uh no, um, You know, like I said, you know, as we were talking earlier, I really left the film and it affected me a different way. And I, you know, it's first of all, the, the score keeps changing for me. First heard the score, it was impactful. The second, the, the the next two times, the second and third time I'd seen the film, I was like, okay, this is definitely not like the original at all. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I had heard terms like a little bit lazy, um, hmm. maybe in certain parts of the score, and I kind of agreed with it. Upon hearing the score the fourth time, in the context of watching the film. I don't believe the score is lazy at all. In fact I had this sort of epiphanal moment and maybe it's maybe it's elementary for you guys, but for me I realize this is a movie that's a dystopian future of a dystopian future. So everything is worse. Everything is more bleak, whereas in the original Blade Runner there's a lot more idea feeling of color even when um, Deckard goes to find Zora. It's very colorful. It's very alive. Mm-hmm. It's very different feel. I feel it's the film Blade Runner twenty forty nine is way less hopeful. It's way less uh, familiar. Mm-hmm. It's far more like desolate. Like things have just gotten worse, and uh, you can feel it, it, it. And I know Denis Villeneuve talked about the used the word brutal to describe the atmosphere. And I really think that it. That that's true, And especially as it relates to the score, it's a very brutal score. It's a very it is. hollow, empty, spherical sound piece that accents the movie perfectly. It should not be anything more than what it is. It's not Vangelis. It shouldn't be Vangelis. It does hearken back to some of those sounds, but it's a completely different world. It's 30 years later. Um, I, I, I'm transported into a very different world than I am when I watched the original. And that's what i really want um so i'll leave it there for now yeah i so so you know you mentioned that you'd heard
2: people say the bounce around terms like lazy and uninspired and i'm, I'm wondering who those people were because i'm pretty sure that was me um and i, I think that uh my my personal relationship with the score has <laughs> it wasn't just changed. you <laughs> so oh, other
0: people said that i'm <laughs> serious yes i wouldn't oh, I, I, wasn't, know, I, I wasn't i wasn't being funny that that like reaction. no 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 i've had oh wow. i mean i know a lot of people yo I know a lot of people that. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. fair enough. Well, so I,
2: so I, my I one thought, friend. I thought that uh, that that it was it was a little bit uninspired, and and I st- I still so my thinking has changed on this, and I will get into that momentarily. I still think that some of it is a little bit color by numbers, and some of it reminds me a little bit of things that I do when I'm running out of time and trying to kind of like make material quickly. Like I, I I can so so I think that there are some sections that are like that. Is that inexcusable? Of course not. It's a film score. It's okay. It does not have to stand on its own as a soundtrack. I think it does for the most part, but it's it's okay if there are some shortcuts that are taken. Mm-hmm. That being said, the things that work, I think work extremely well. I think they work like really elementally effectively well and mm-hmm. and part of my thinking on this has shifted because of producing the segment that I produced for our previous episode. Um, where I really did a deep dive into an interview that Wallfish and Zimmer did, um, on a Facebook Live video, which I had heard, you know, when it was done in early October, but I'd never really kind of gone through and thought about. And 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 I and I think I get a a larger appreciation for what they were going for. Mm-hmm. And I think what they were going for was really noble. And I think it was really well done. And I and I, I really like the fact that they, for example, used an original CS80 in the soundtrack. I think that was really good. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that they did things with it that were super interesting. I think that having seen it now on a number of different theatrical sound systems, that the score is is perhaps um, a little bit over compressed or, or it, it peaks a little bit too much. Because in some, in some sound systems, it actually, uh, you can hear the speakers are having a hard time handling it. But I submit that that is a good thing. And that we should be pushing our our sound systems and our projection systems to the technological limit and forcing them to um, to get better because when you hear it with headphones, you don't have that issue. So you mm-hmm. know, like I would rather it be pushed to the absolute margin of what's technically doable to force people to to get better because it is really powerful. Yeah. And part of why it's really powerful, and Hans Zimmer says this in the in the interview, is that with these analog um, non-digitized. Uh, synthesizers you can you can really amp the sound up very loudly and have these very evocative very powerful soundscapes at extremely high volumes without any sort of hint of digitization or compression or like pixelization at audit auditorily speaking mm-hmm. um and so it comes across really clearly but also really loudly and, and i just think you know i, I was saying like I, i'm loving seeing this in theaters and that's part of it it's like
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know you, it shakes your sternum when you watch it
1: it is yeah. it
2: is powerful shit
1: yeah yeah, I agree. I think uh, the biggest uh, big yeah. Oh well, I mean, when I saw it today, it was uh, that part where Kay is walking through the kind of that desert area on, on his way to the casino, really slowly, and and the sound music just cranks up, and the speakers right. start cracking in right. like <laughs> my theater. And uh, but, uh, but I mean, it was a good effect, and I heard a lot. I mean, I heard some of the even uh goldenthal's alien three score a little bit and there was some like the wow i can't i can't imitate it, but it's something <laughs> something like that <laughs> but uh that and then um i got a lot of interstellar vibe too from it which i'm yes. sure hans zimmer had a big influence on that um especially towards the end of the film but uh just it just really works for me um you know there there's not a lot of Really, uh noticeable themes in it. There's not uh not like really distinct melodies. It's just this aural, you know, soundscape uh ethereal. It just really um it just really works. I, and I still wanna hopefully I mean, if there is any um of Johan Johansson's take on the score, I, I'd love to hear it at some point, but I don't know if it will ever that'll ever see the light of day. But I but I what we got is yeah the I, one think I think it will too I think for...
0: it will I think we'll mm-hmm. get that they're going to want to yeah. make as much money off of this film as they possibly can I would imagine right. Um, right. seeing as it's we'll get into it later but it's kind of essentially broken even right now and um, right.
2: also because Denny is, is a friend and collaborator of Johansson and he probably wants Johansson's work to get some credit you know even though it didn't necessarily work for that film mm-hmm. I mean we know it was probably very interesting music you know
1: yeah yeah so but yeah I just I love the score and it's, uh, it's even nice just to listen listen to like a late night drive, you know yes just, uh, it, It's, uh, a, it's so. a
0: work unto itself as mm-hmm. well. there's yeah. a, there's a spot in the score when I saw it yesterday that I picked up on maybe I'm crazy maybe it's not there, but I'm telling you it's there. So mm-hmm. when it's that same scene when Kay is walking in that beautiful yellow in Las Vegas yeah Las Vegas yeah. and he's walking towards the that building you hear a child you hear mm-hmm. a child's voice. Cry out very lightly, um, and I thought it was interesting. And uh, playing off of that, there's a scene in when he comes home for the first time, and he's sitting down to eat. The building across from them shows a woman and a child. Um, mm. the, the child looks like it's sitting down. The You're woman. You're talking about Kay, across from Kay's apartment. Across from Kay's apartment. Yeah. yeah. Um. It's just subtle things that I picked up on. Um. The idea of mothers, mothers and children. Um, that yeah, cool. that kind of motif. That's, and I I am certain that that child's voice is in there. Um, but it was something like I hadn't heard it before. Again, I was just kind of discovering new things and looking at the screen and listening for things that I hadn't heard before. Um, and as I really intently listened to that score, it it. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, it's it's an emotion. It was an emotional experience, mm-hmm. and I really feel like the score is really who Kay is. It's this it's kind of this beautiful creature, but it, it, it this creature is also hollow and mm. It's, mm. It, it's without purpose. Um, and and it's almost
2: it... like post narrative, you know, like, yeah. like a, a lot of, a lot of the, mo- it's funny. The movie has at its core an extremely simple, basic story to it. Yeah. But there's, but so much of the story comes out of the imagery and the soundscapes and the, in the storytelling techniques that like, there's obviously all these different layers going on. And the music is sort of like that too, because if you listen to it, um, from the sort of valent outermost level, what you get from it is is just this kind of, um, you know, very loud, very kind of, um, you know, almost homogenous kind of blankets of synth pads sounding thing. But mm-hmm. if you really listen to it, there there is a lot going on. And there's a lot of interplay between the different synthesizers that they used happening. And there's a lot of kind of interesting percussion things going on. And the more you look at it, the more the more you're able to appreciate the nuance, even if it's not necessarily contrapuntal or if it's not necessarily, um, you know, intricate. It's fascinating still. You know, like like there's more – it's not monolithic. It's not just this sort of block, just like Con- the movie's not,
1: you know? Yeah. Con- contrapuntal? Man, I have to go to dictionary.com. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah I, that's over my head too. Yeah. Well,
2: well, you can listen to my previous segment, and I, I'm talking about <laughs> I did just, listen Just to me, it. meaning like more than one voice going on simultaneously. So like so in, in the score, like there's not a, there's not a, for the most part it's kind of one sound world that is allowed to uh, to like act within itself, you know. Mm-hmm. And it kind of moves on to the next sonic idea. That's not like these kind of melodic things that are intertwining, which is which is totally cool, I think. You know, something else. Speaking of of hidden images or hidden illusions. There's one that jumped out at me the first time I saw the film, and I was like, there's no – there's no way. And so I listened to it the second time when I was watching it, and, and I heard it very distinctly again. So then I told my wife, Micah, who was coming on the show um, in the next couple of episodes hopefully. She's got a lot to say about this movie as well. And, and I was like, can you help me listen listen for this and tell me if you agree And she has better ears than I do, and she heard it immediately too. when Joy is in Deckard's like, observatory at that Las Vegas hotel mm-hmm. – mm-hmm. And she's walking up and down his electronic equipment. Remember, she's just kind of, like, poking around. Yeah. Um, the sound of the Nostromo is playing. The, like, yes! Yes!
0: That? Yes! Yeah, yeah, I right. heard it, too, but I thought, no, that's just me. Yeah, it's
2: going... Yeah. Yeah, it's yep. so distinctive. and i It's very distinctive. That's a sonic allusion wow. to Alien, which is so fascinating. It must have been Ridley Scott doing a little in-joke or something. Um, but that's a sound that I, I I know extremely well, obviously having seen Alien forty five thousand times. But also because that's like <laughs> used to go to sleep sometimes. You know, I I put on the the backing sound on YouTube of the <laughs> Destroyer, and
0: um, it's so cool hearing that. It is, uh, you know, I that whole scene in that casino is it's pretty a, it's a very profound series of events that happen there, um, yeah. and just the interplay and I, I again, it's just more stuff that I'm kind of processing trying to kind of understand even though it like you guys said yes i think it's a simple story but i also think the best stories are simple stories oh it's, I, the, it's yeah. the story it's the story of looking for purpose and i was reading something about um about 2049 i can't remember where i was reading it. i think i was reading it yesterday but they're talking about um k aspiring to be more than he is um, and that's the revolution for him. He's mm-hmm. aspired to be more than what his, more than just baseline, more than just subservient. And that moment where he decides to be, to to die for a cause is to be human. It's mm-hmm. a very human thing to do. I think that woman, the replicant woman, told him that. Um, and yeah, it's, Frieza, it's, it's, and and it is the most human thing to do,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. Die for something ineffable that you believe in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
2: mean, how. More non synthetic, can you get, you know?
1: We saw you baseline. And blood black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells, interlinked within cells, interlinked within one step. Job. And dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain playing with Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. 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 Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. 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 When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. Because is not Decker ask him at the end, life? like, you know, what, uh, what do you have, like, with, with me, like, what is it about me that, you know, you're doing this? Um, yeah. And he just says, "Go, go meet your daughter." You know, yeah. just like, um, you know, like he doesn't need to answer. He, he feels like he's finally connected. He finally found purpose, um, and uh, you know, it just it was a really beautiful moment. So. And it's funny. Um, I,
2: I didn't even consider it until Deckard yeah. asked him that. I wasn't even. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even thinking like, what dog yeah. does K have in this fight anymore? Yeah,
1: right. You know. Mm-hmm. But
2: it's true. Like, like, and and that and that is the humanity. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's this leap of faith. It's the self sacrifice for what's right, mm-hmm. even though there's not any benefit to it for for K personally. You know. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, can yeah. we just do a
2: couple like kind of rapid fire lightning questions for each other? Yeah, I got a couple. All right, so so give me so so what what are your what 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 is one line in the film that stands out to to each of us? Ryan, you go.
1: Oh crap! <laughs> <Are> you just <laughs>
2: saw it again like thirty minutes ago? So you, you remember most of the lines of dialogue? Yeah, do you have one that's on the tip of your tongue?
1: If you um, know. honestly, I, I think it was uh, Joy's line about uh, you know you you're special, you know, you, you have a purpose. Um, and even though I think she was referring to, because she thought that he was uh, born, the one born of, uh, from Rachel, um, he wasn't, I think it still holds a lot of meaning at the end, that he he was special, he does have a purpose. And you see that at the very end with uh, with this interaction with, um, with Deckard and bringing him to his daughter and... You know, and having finally having that humanity, which, you know, which for his model, you know, he was supposed to be obedient and subservient and not really do anything on his own, had to be a baseline or else he'd probably get retired. But, uh, but no, you know, at the end, he finally, he finally found it. He, he was more human than human. He was, yeah, yeah. so. Less
2: well, special. Mm-hmm. But just not in the way that, that he thought he was.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Jamie, what do you got?
0: We shall storm Eden and retake her. Oh, from... I knew you were going to. You love Wallace. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I, 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 I'm... I know why. He's that's a... how you talk. Yeah, you're right. Uh... <laughs> you,
2: you, you, talk, you talk like an ancient prophet sometimes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but I, I do. I love the lyricalness of that. I love that it connects with um, biblical ideology, which I know, Patrick, that we've heard about uh, from a couple of listeners. Or a yeah. listener about some of that, which we can talk about. But I, I do that; it just resonates with me. And uh, Wallace is still very—you don't know—we don't know much about him. He's very enigma- enigmatic, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't. At the end of the movie, we don't—we don't really know what his goals are. We don't know if he's evil or if he's, or if he's a replicant. We don't know anything about Wallace. Yeah, um, but, and, and and like, and I, why did he
2: not pursue? K, like, 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 why, why, why did Kay get all the way back to Stalin's laboratory? Um, basically with you know, after having killed love and, you know, uh, destroying these three spinners that Wallace was, uh, I would imagine tracking, you know, like, like he, he allowed Kay to basically take Deckard all the way to his daughter again.
0: But they said that in the movie, he, that spinner went down and Kay goes, you have died. You died in the, you died out there. Like, that was the evidence. Right, they, right, they right. Would. So, okay. if Wallace is tracking that spinner, and the spinner, all the spinners are destroyed and in the water, Wallace probably thinks they're all gone now. Good point, so.
2: good point, good point. But, do you think Wallace is the kind of guy who would assume?
0: I think initially he might assume it, but he also would be thorough, and he would want more information. Yeah. Um, so, what, what about you, Patrick? So, I, I think
2: my favorite line is, uh, sometimes... To love someone, you gotta be a stranger. which is the worst <laughs> Deckard impression I've ever done in my, in my head <laughs> I think uh, I think that's like just an incredible line and I think seeing Harrison Ford get the chance to deliver something like that was so powerful because like you know his career has been obviously the stuff of Hollywood legend but but he hasn't been able to be truly vulnerable that much, you know mm-hmm. and deckard the part if
1: he was a little bit in the future, this
2: (laughs) life beneath, he was pretty vulnerable, but you know, in in general, the, the roles that we think of him for, you know, especially Han and Indiana Jones, like those, those are, those are very kind of, you know, these guys can get through anything and they're very Mm -hmm. tough, even though they might be afraid of snakes. They're they're very, they're very resilient people, but Deckard has always been haunted, you know, like he's always been afraid. He's always been smaller than Harrison Ford is in terms of, um, Character, you know, yeah. and, and 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 what's so beautiful about this film is that it's given Decker these intervening decades to to draw deeper and deeper within to himself
0: mm-hmm. and then
2: to, to come out of it with this almost Confucian deep truth, which is that that sometimes the most I mean, because because it's true, like uh, he he hid himself from his daughter because he loved her so much that he wouldn't allow harm to come to her, you know, yeah. And the, and that and that is uh, you know, we, we talk, there's this trope in Blade Runner that we always talk about about what it means to be human, right? and 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 in this, we come away with this very clear idea that that to be human is to sacrifice yourself for the for the greater good. But sometimes to be human is also to make and a difficult decision that flies in the face of what your heart is telling you to do because you know, that it is the right thing to do for somebody that means more to you than you perhaps mean to yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just, just a, a really beautiful expression of that. And it's a line that I think is really iconic and really understated and just delivered in a, in a way that should get him a supporting actor nomination, in my opinion.
0: I would hope so. Yeah. His character continues to be, you know, when we left Deckard in the original, he was, as we've discussed, as I've discussed, he was brought back to life. Rachel really brought him back to life. When Mm -hmm. we meet him again, he is without Rachel. He is without that life force. Um, He's not only without Rachel, he's without his child. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's very much kind of retreated back into himself, much like he was when we met him before. Um, And Kay kind of operated as that, again, another replicant showing him that no life is more than this. Mm -hmm. Um, there's so much going on, there's so many layers going on, and Kay's also learning that lesson himself. Um, And, you know, uh, speaking of Kay, I had these revelations when I was watching the film, and I was thinking about Philip K. Dick's inspiration for Do Androids Dream of of Electric Sheep? Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that I read about him was when he was reading about... The Nazis, the SS, and their treatment of Jews during World War Two, mm-hmm. and he was trying to process how a human could do that to another human, and the way that the hum- one human could do that to another human is by is by not seeing those people as people. Right. They're mm-hmm. they're right. something different. They're not. They're and I I look at K and and then I, I also started thinking about um in. During World War Two, during the Holocaust, uh, the SS would employ Jews to guard the other Jews.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Much, much like Kay was a replicant hunting other replicants. They decided to give the dirty jobs to, well, let's just have them police themselves. I mean, certainly they did the dirty job too. They're the ones who uh, ultimately exterminated them in terms yeah. of the SS killing the Jews. But they had... Jews had their own people rounding them up and mm-hmm. getting them in line and doing all this stuff. And then I also thought about slavery in America and how slaves were also employed by owners to right. cor- corral other slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it's this very interesting thing, oh, you're important. No, you're not important. What you're doing is you're corralling and what we what they believed were animals because mm-hmm. they don't they don't want to be tasked with it. Um, And I just, as I was watching Kay and watching people treat Kay and the way people looked away or the way he was scoffed at, or even, uh, there was an interesting moment in 2049 when um, Robin Wright's character goes to his apartment. What's her name again? I can't remember. Joshi. Joshi. Okay. She's at his apartment Mm -hmm. and she's talking to him and she wants to hear a little bit about his memories and, you know, he's telling her they're not really real, but I can tell you and she has to kind of command him. Mm -hmm. And then she looks at the bottle and she goes, what's going to happen if I finish that? Which I believed she wanted to have sex with him. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, It was a master trying to have sex with a slave. Right. And he didn't want that. Um, Right. And so he was like, well, I guess I should get back to work. And it reminded me of documents and films and um, things that I've seen of, whether it's people who have been imprisoned, and then being coerced into, or slaves, enslaved, or th- then being coerced into sexual whatever by their captors. Yeah. Um, and it right. was just a strange moment where he had no power. He is subservient. He's he's programmed to be subservient. He's programmed to say yes. You could see it in her eyes. She was attracted to him, um, but she still doesn't see him, see him as human. He's just this thing that
2: could Well, probably... she even says, well, right before she propositions him, she says, like, you know, we never had any of you guys in our neighborhood growing up. Yeah, like she's talking about him like he's just this like you know appliance basically. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And it's it's still that those people. Um, you're yeah. not. You might look like us. You might act like us. But you're not one of us. But um, you're so curious. It's like you're you're exotic. Like you're
2: different. But, yeah. but you're not. You're not us. You're, yeah. you're not like let's not let's not get confused here. It's mm-hmm.
0: beautiful. It's beautiful merchandise. Really, it's stuff that we they own. It's right. Your merchandise, and you're you're looking pretty hot to me right now. A, a beautiful um, tin soldier, right? As that woman shouts
2: at him in the stairwell. Right? Totally tin speaking plate of, soldier. yeah.
0: Speaking of tin plate soldier, just really quick, there's there's an element in Deckard's home area in Vegas um, that speaks to that tin soldier thing. Did you, and you, you guys notice that? What? What's what's in the window? There are four terracotta soldiers. Hmm. Wow. Um, and as you know, terracotta warriors were unearthed in the uh, in Han chi- Dynasty, right? Yeah, and in, in China, years and years yeah. ago. And they're all essentially cast just the same. They're all made right. just the same. Um, right. I, and I just felt like it was speaking to, who knows, maybe what Deckard was, what kay was. Yeah, these, these soldiers wow. that were just kind of replicated and replicated. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome, awesome thing to notice.
2: Uh, hey, can I, an, another speed round for you guys. What is the single most memorable image for each of you in the film? You go first. Mine, mine is the bee landing on Kay's hand in Las Vegas. Wow. I don't know why, but that's the one that I see when I'm sleeping at night. It's the one that I wake up thinking about. Um, and I, I I think, so I, I I think there's a lot of layers to why that is. Obviously, like from a narrative standpoint, it makes sense because it's, it's hinting that Deckard is there, right? Because he's harvesting bees. But it's also like, uh, you know, there's this epidemic of, of bees going extinct now globally. And it's been like that for almost a decade. Mm-hmm. And have you, have you guys, are you guys familiar with
0: this situation? Oh yeah. I've seen many documentaries.
2: Yeah. There's all these amazing documentaries on it. Um, it, it is a, it is a real potential catastrophe for global food supply and things like that. Um, and these bees are going extinct. And I think it's just amazing that like the only sign of natural life in the whole movie, other than that daisy under a dead tree, hmm. It's a a bee colony in the middle of a radioactive desert. And I, I, I think that um, also just the color. I think that Roger Deakins had just completely outdid himself. And I think that's his best work ever. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that you, you don't see that anywhere more clearly than you do in the Las Vegas scenes, which, of course, were shot almost entirely practically. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: yeah, he's,
2: he's, he's photos from the set. And those statues are real. Those are wireframe <laughs> statues Yeah. in a humongous soundstage. Like, mm-hmm. like th- that is that is legit. And the way that it's lit and the way that it's framed, I mean, th- that shot that Ryan was talking about where you hear that dum-dum and then it just yeah. shows Kay walking in the desert. And it's like, you know, at like 70 frames per second slowed down and you just see like the dust kind of coming off the back of his silhouetted foot. As he walks into this just this nothingness and he sees a heat signature and he goes towards it, you know, mm-hmm. and then it's a bee that lands on his hand in that moment where he realizes like all of the implications of that because this is a, a vacated nuclear wasteland basically, mm-hmm. right? This is a place where nobody has been in decades supposedly and not only is there life here, but there's a there's culture to life here like there's life that is being harvested for food stocks. Mm-hmm. which means that like obviously Deckard is, is there or somebody is there, but also that bees for whatever reason are the resilient organisms and the, and the color palette of the orange and the black against this incredible sandstorm yellow that, that those scenes are shot with. It's just, just so evocative And the way that it's framed, how his hand is right in the center of the frame, just like his silhouette was as he's walking towards it. I just think it's just, just uh completely, uh, I can't get out of my head. How yeah. about you
0: guys. I'll go. That scene, I, I'm torn. I mean, there's so, so many beautiful scenes, but that scene where love is taking him through, I, I guess it's the Wallace Corporation, and they walk through the glass, the glass cases full of replicant um, models. I suppose. Yeah. Um, sex. Stuff. It's so beautiful and so terrifying at the same time, um, mm-hmm. where you have these non humans, wa- you know, walking amongst non humans. Um, it's it's a, it's just a the imagery is just, it's iconic already. It's iconic. There's, I haven't seen anything like it before. And there, it's its fascinating that they pulled off that image that I haven't seen anything like before because we've seen so much already. We've seen, like, with so many other films, so many other beautifully made films like AI or The Cell or, or mm-hmm. Coma or things that have bodies that kind of are hanging. I hadn't seen anything like that before. So yeah. that's, that's probably my favorite image.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's so beautiful and, and the color palette there again it's this this yellow, you know? Like we we talk about um enemy, like that's you know, Jamie and I like that's yes. one of our one of our favorite Villeneuve movies and that's like so dominated by this kind of tobacco stained yellow color palette. Mm-hmm. And that same thing is, is here, but it's, it, there's so many variations on it. And, and those, like the way that, <laughs> oh my God, I said the way with Yutani, the Wallace corporation <laughs> ar- archive room, um, you know, how it's all bedecked in those, those resplendent yellow hues. And like this, this whole, this room where there's these, like these hanging, um, replicants that you just mentioned, like it, it's these shades of yellow that are just, there's so much depth there, you know? And mm-hmm. again, I think it's Roger Deakins. I think the cinematography is just incredible.
1: Yeah. yeah he's phenomenal um really the look he gives Bill movies are just top notch I mean it's that's a big thing that among many things that draws me to his films is you know Deacon's work on uh, cinematography and I think I think in 2049 that was definitely his best out of all of them with with Villeneuve. so um but mine is well I had a couple um. One, it wasn't so much the, the shot, as the kind of implication of the scene. But you have uh, you have Kay on the ground, really bruised and battered, and then Love sees the that little um, Wallace item that helps so, so that Kay could carry around Joy with, with the uh, emanator. Yeah, the emanator. Yeah. That's right and uh, and she lifts her foot up is about to stomp on it, and you see joy and she's in tears because she knows this is it um, and this is this is a created thing that was truly like emanated <laughs> uh, referring to the emanator but emanated love and, and like right at the end right. she run she kneels down and says, "I love and then it cuts out after love crushes it and that's it and and you just see the pain, or he's already in pain, but now he's in emotional pain too, um, on Kay's face. Um, so just that whole scene, because I just really um, I felt the most for for Joy's character. You know, it just seemed like something that wanted so much to be to be real and to feel love and acceptance, and then just like that, she's you know taken out of existence um, that easily. And it was just uh, just a really kind of moving part, you know, part for me. So, um, and then the last part is just the last shot with Harrison Ford's hand on the glass, and mm. him getting misty-eyed, seeing his daughter for the, you know, for the first time in decades, um, and just a just a great way to end the film. So, yeah.
2: It yeah. really is, and and I remember like as the film as the film was drawing to a close, thinking. Oh, they're not going to show this. Like they're they're going to end with Kay, you know, dying or or not dying. But that's a whole separate episode on the stairs. Mm-hmm. And then they do show it, and it's and it's not trite. Like it's not this predictable. Like I, I was worried that they would do it because it would feel too kind of like neat, you know, mm-hmm. like tidy, like tie the bow and send it off. But but it doesn't. It feels like it's almost too powerful to watch. You know, mm-hmm. like it's it's almost too much and 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 that's that's the way that it that it, it should end a movie like that, you know yeah, it ends with this incredibly intimate small moment between two people where like this this eternal divide is being being uh closed and I really like so here here's a question for you guys. do you think that she actually has an immunodeficiency or do you think that that was just part of a ploy to keep her safe?
1: I think that was a ploy to keep her safe for I mean, sure too. yeah agreed agreed mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. so that means
2: that, like, at that moment, not only is she meeting her dad, but she's about to breathe air again. You know, she's about to go outside and feel the snowfall,
0: you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe they told the people at that orphanage that she has Galatian syndrome so that they would keep her safe, too. Like, oh, yeah. you know, um, which was interesting. That whole orphanage bit was very interesting in itself. Uh, yeah, that that whole setup of that. When, whenever they go to that orphanage, I'll, I always think about... Uh, The people who make our phones, the people who make our technology, who live Mm. in third world conditions and Mm -hmm. they get paid shit. And a lot of them are children and Mm -hmm. uh, they do this. And he's like, oh, they're collecting silver for these ships. That's the closest to off world they ever get. And it's like it's and I kept thinking about the people in China and are all over the country or all over the world. I mean, who make our things that make our lives better, but they'll never see America or they'll never see London. Um, yeah, that's, right. a, that's the making a phone for someone who lives there is the closest they'll ever get to it. Um, yeah. And like third world, like, if, if, like our, our first world problems is essentially off world for them. Mm-hmm. You know? um, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good point, Jamie, that
2: that for them, when, when, when they're saying they'll never get off world. That's like that's like telling somebody who is, you know, a minimum wage Foxconn worker. Um, mm-hmm. like, like, like you're never, like, let's face it. You're never going to become this upwardly mobile, you know, Western citizen with disposable income where you can just buy an iPad and, and throw it out, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And that's something that, that that's something I want to flag that we should talk about in future episodes. We should look into more.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to discuss, but I know Patrick, you have the notes. Uh, I think you pasted them in, but, uh, the idea of the biblical references, the religious, um, implications of the story. Um, and what's something I've never thought about. I mean, I've been thinking of a lot about the elements of 2049 in terms of a lot of the sociological challenges that we face, a lot of the the tribalism um, that we face as a, as a nation, as a country, in terms of uh, kind of races at odds with each other, seeing people as not people, and all those different Id- ideas that Blade Runner 2049 mm. presents to us the the religious aspect I didn't even think of because I'm so interested and in, into kind of the the other side of the spectrum.
2: Right. Well, so so this is uh, so before I, I get into this, um, we we initially were hoping to fill much of tonight's episode with your reactions, you the listener, um, but unfortunately we didn't tell you that until pretty pretty late in the in the recording cycle for this. So officially, we would love to hear from you. And there's a number of ways you can do that, one of which is calling a dedicated phone number that we have set up, which nobody will pick up. Like you're not going to have any awkward conversations with us. It just goes straight to voicemail, and you can (laughs) leave a message, and that number is 213-787-7894. That's 213-787-7894, and I'll say it again in a second. But basically, you can just call that number and just tell us anything that you want to talk about with this movie, literally anything, what your thoughts were, what your ideas are, what your theories are, things that you think we have said that are wrong. Like, for example, I was corrected that I – I'm apparently still saying Vangelis, which is out of an old habit. It's supposed to be Vangelis. Did I, you I, read that did you read that review as well? Yeah, I saw somebody said that on <laughs> <laughs> It's fine. You're right. But I've been saying it like way since I was like six. So, you know, I'm gonna try to break
1: <laughs> it.
0: For the record, as we're talking about this, I've heard many different people from many different walks of life, people who should know, say Vangelis or Vangelis.
2: So And hey, to be fair, he says Vangelis, so you know, I mean it, the yeah. Greek oh.
0: But I don't I appreciate I appreciate and respect like I as a as someone, you know, I am not an expert on any of this. I will never will be. Um, I I'm passionate about it. I think we're passionate about it. That's why we're here discussing it. We are not above reproach. Please let us know if, you know, you guys have questions or comments or whatever. Um, But I am no expert, so I will probably continue to get things wrong.
2: Oh yeah, and just tell us. Like we, we love hearing that. Like so, like so, like I just said, the guy corrected me. Thank you, stranger, uh, <laughs> on on an iTunes review, and and I read it, and now I'm going to correct myself. So you can you can call in with those kinds of things. Just basically call in with whatever you want, but we will play your calls on the air, um, and that will that that's a continuous thing that we hope to do forever on this podcast. Yeah, especially right now, we really want to get your thoughts on 2049. What you thought about it. What your theories are, etc. So one more time, that number is two one three. 787-7894. You can also send us an email at bladerunnerpodcast at gmail.com. That's bladerunnerpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on our new social media page, which is Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group, um, which you can, you can access, you know, by searching any of that on Facebook or by going to our shoulder of Orion Facebook page. It's linked there, but it's a dedicated Facebook group. Uh, that is, uh, it's already off to a really good start and it has a new admin named Froyland Gardner, who's a really good friend of ours. We mentioned him on the podcast before and Froyland will be there to help answer any questions, to help guide conversations and help that, build that community up and to solicit your thoughts so we can get them on the air. Cause we want to talk to you guys. So awesome. All that being said, I apologize. going on for so long. Um, a really good buddy of mine, Darren, who I know through our uh, our, our Formula One podcast that we're both uh, fans of and uh, talk about all the time, uh, his name is Darren, and he says, Hey, Patrick, I love 2049, and I've just started the most recent spoiler podcast. I don't know if you will get onto this, but I haven't heard it elsewhere. Is the 30-year gap accidental? According to the Bible, Jesus was around 30 years old when he started making his mark in a big way and was crucified about three years later, so... The child had an impossible birth and was sent or created to be a miracle and lead a race out of the darkness. This would make Tyrell God if the analogy fits. And he says, uh, I don't know. There are so many things going on with the film, so many layers that I felt the timings were possibly not a coincidence. Um, and then uh, later on, he uh, he also sent me a message that says, "Hey, mate, I just listened to the episode where you reviewed the 2036 short, in which Jared Leto refers to the replicant as an angel, which I have created, and that could be something to this theory as well." So, uh, so, so again, um, there's a lot going on here in terms of possible religious overtones and references, and and I don't think we mm-hmm. necessarily need to pack these on this particular episode, but let's like let's table this for next time when we get into more of your theories and uh and and, in the meantime, Darren and anybody else who's interested in this uh we are going to be talking about it and theorizing about it and yeah. uh yeah, I think there's a
0: lot to unpack right there I mm-hmm. do want to add something though about the angel bit so uh, <laughs> so uh mm-hmm. if, if, if anyone <laughs> if, if anyone is familiar with the bible uh and the story of Genesis and Adam and Eve um they will know that Adam and Eve were um expelled expelled from the garden of Eden and, uh, God quote unquote, put angels to guard Eden. Um, so it's interesting when he says he creates these angels. So the angels are going to go and expel humans from the garden and retake mm-hmm. it. Um, I just thought it was an interesting, um, again, a more in depth or just a more throwback to a, a biblical reality or something that, uh, the the Bible has, it's essentially mythology, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so if anything, it's like the angels are the gatekeepers of the world. Like this is our world, and we're 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 turning you out of it. Um, and it's and again in that part two, Neander uses the term we. We shall storm Eden and retake it. Mm-hmm. He refers to replicants and himself as we, as if mm-hmm. he is a replicant as well, which we don't know if he is or he isn't. Yeah, um, right. We don't right. know if he could have been a Nexus Seven that he is somehow enabled, been able to you know uh, get longer life, or he's he, he's he seems younger, but he doesn't seem younger. We don't really know how old he is. At any rate, it's a very it's it is a lot to unpack, and I look forward to those episodes where we're going to talk about that more. But uh, the whole angel, and we, we heard the term angel in that short with Neander Wallace, where mm-hmm. he brings the replicant with him, and he introduces him as an angel. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's no coincidence.
1: Yeah. He also refers to them, to them as his children, so maybe, you know, he identifies with them, um, you know, like, uh, like he shares uh, that quality with them. So maybe he was, uh, you know, a replicant. Um, or some, yeah, some kind of advance maybe a, a Nexus 8, but probably a 7 that somehow got a longer lifespan or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: Or maybe and... he doesn't know, you know?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe he
0: doesn't. You know, there's some things that, again, revealed themselves to me, and this is just speculation, but I don't, I don't know, just because so much was turned over on its head by the end of 2049. In the original... Deckard is having a dream with a unicorn in it, and of course, this is in the director's cut, and then again in the final cut. So it's essentially the cut. It's that's the definitive version. Yeah, of that's Brunner. the version we're talking about. Um, yeah. What is? Let me ask you guys this: What mm. is? What is a unicorn? What does it mean? What is it? It it is a is it, it it's an impossible creature
2: that has been rumored for millennia, and represents the ultimate. Uh, unreachable or unattainable perfection,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and it's something that we can't that that we can very easily conceptualize, and something that has elements in it that are very easily understandable, but that ultimately doesn't exist. But it feels like it could.
0: Mm-hmm. Why do we think Deckard was having dreams or visions of a unicorn? What does that mean? And this goes directly into something that Wallace says to him later on. Ooh, <laughs> and well, it really it is, to, to me. Ryan,
2: you, to, you, you talk. Yeah,
0: and I, I'll go on, but I'm just gonna say to me, this solidifies what something.
2: Yeah, yeah, but hmm. well, yeah, uh, well, yeah. I, I, I know, I, I have also turned a corner on that because of this movie. But yeah, yeah, but 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 we do not know, and that's important. But Ryan, <laughs> what 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 do you think about the unicorn?
1: Um. Well, you you definitely. Uh, T- you know, I was just gonna say it's a white horse with a horn on its head but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh but uh yeah, I mean, I just you know with everything you said i mean i I didn't even really think about it that much but uh but obviously, there's significance to it, and um I think Wallace new- knows deckard's dreams um and um, But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious to kind of hear what you, you guys have to say about it more. So, well,
2: so, so, yeah. like, so before we get to Jamie, who is like, you know, the Wizard of Oz over here with something <laughs> <you> sitting on. <laughs> he's gonna, gonna hold on. <laughs> get there before we get to the horse of another um, <laughs> Let me just say, so, so, I, so, traditionally, and correct me if I'm wrong on this. I don't think I am. that the, the unicorn sequence is why people assume he's a replicant because uh got cuz gaff of course leaves it leaves a unicorn origami at the end mm-hmm. uh, suggesting that people knew what deckard was thinking about suggesting that perhaps there were implanted memories or something of that nature yeah um so to me the unicorn dream uh i i, I never took it to mean that he was a replicant i thought it was a coincidence that that it was a unicorn at the end of the movie but mm. i thought that um in dreams people see fantastical things and that, uh, and that, a unicorn was about the most antithetical thing to a rain-soaked noodle pavilion that he could have possibly thought of, mm-hmm. <laughs> and represented freedom and impossibility and beauty, and the, of course the way it was shot too. You know, it was just so mm-hmm. so, refulgent and glorious. Um, so to me, that's what that's what that that's what that represented. It has changed in the wake of twenty forty nine, mm-hmm. but uh, but Jamie, go ahead.
0: Well, before I get into it. The- there's the whole toy that we see throughout 2049. It's not a unicorn, but it's a horse. It's still very related. It's something very different. Like, and there's a question that Kay asked Deckard when he saw him about the dog. He goes, is that real? And he goes, oh no, ask him. Um, (laughs) So animals are essentially extinct. There are none. You don't see any um, from, from what we gather.
2: Mm but
0: Um, but the idea that Deckard made a horse, and there was other animals that you saw that he carved, but he made a horse, and he left it with his daughter. Um, I It's the idea that it's, it's in the line of that unicorn mythology. But with the unicorn, the unicorn is very singular. It's one of a kind. It's made for a very specific reason. Um, and mm-hmm. that's what I think... That I believe firmly, I th- am firmly in the camp that Deckard is a replicant, and that vision of a unicorn wasn't a dream. It was whatever programming telling him that you were different. You were made different. You were made for something else, and that something else, and that something else is Rachel. That's what mm. I think. I, I just it, it totally fits. He was dreaming about this this idea, this mythology, this mythological creature that doesn't exist and the idea that a replicant can have a child is something that is mythological replicants mm-hmm. can't have children they they will never be able to have children it is an impossibility but in fact much like sarah in the bible who um, married abraham who could not have children just like oh that there's another great quote from the film um and god looked upon rachel and um what 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 else did he say he said and god looked upon rachel and he was well with her, or something, and blessed Rachel, and then Rachel had a child. That was mm. a direct quote taken from the Bible, but they used Rachel's name instead. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. You guys, I, I am, I am, I just went down about a twenty-second Wikipedia rabbit hole as you were talking. <laughs> <and> <laughs> holy shit! I'm finding some crazy stuff. All right, let's give, give me one second here. All right? So unicorns um, are, are one, one, a mention of a proto unicorn in the Bible is called a raem. Uh, which uh, appears in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, Numbers, uh, some of the Psalms, and Isaiah, etc. And uh, in the King James version of the Book of Job, uh, there is a translation of "ram" that directly mirrors to "unicorn." And this is this is what it says. Are you ready for this shit? Yes. This is Job 39: uh, 9 through 12. Ready? Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee, or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with band in the furrow or wilt he harrow the valleys after thee? Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great or wilt thou leave thy labor to him? Wilt thou believe him that he will bring home thy seed and gather it into thy barn? Holy shit. <laughs> Yo, we are, we are fucking going to this. That, that is a uh, very important, I think. <laughs> I'm going to bookmark that, and we're gonna have a whole episode about unicorns because holy shit, <laughs> I think there's a lot of imagery here that we aren't even thinking about. But totally, but in that in that passage, obviously he's saying, uh, you know, like like, w- will you believe in the unicorn? Will you believe that he can bring home your seed and gather it into your barn? That there's this um, idea that the unicorn is going to bring life, that the unicorn is going to bring mm-hmm. birth.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, I am listen. Bookmark- Listen to this about the Rachel of the Bible, just really quick. This is real quick. The younger daughter of Laban and wife of Jacob, Rachel is the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, who become two of the twelve tribes of a- of Israel. Mm-hmm. So she, she is the mother of a revolution of of someone who's going to. Uh, I mean, there's more set up here for um, a sequel, even though there isn't. But there is. Um, these nothing here is coincidental. These. Hampton Fancher and Michael Green did their research. They, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this, I mean, there's pages and pages that you could write on the significance of these characters. Um, And it kind of, to me, it all goes back to Rachel again. Like, I I cannot get Rachel out of my head. Like, I feel like, I don't know, she's just like haunting me. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: Her presence in the film. And then we see her again. And then I thought about that scene where, He says Rachel's eyes were green. And then that replicant is killed. Rachel is then killed again. Um, And I thought, and that was Deckard's fault that this Rachel was killed. Like, doesn't he even care? Like they just—it's—it's it's like they like they killed her indiscriminately, and I know it's not the same Rachel, but you could tell in her eyes—you looked at her eyes when she was looking at him. She's looked confused a little bit. She's not really certain. She reminds yeah. me a little. It reminds me of that scene in Hitchcock's Vertigo, when Judy Barton, who is found by Jimmy Stewart, and is then made up to look like Madeline Elster. Yeah. And if you're right. familiar, Madeline Elster kills herself, yep. and then. Jimmy Stewart finds this woman who looks just like her. And it's not just a coincidence. Um, I won't get into it. We can get into it another time. But there are parallels there. And so mm-hmm. then he is reintroduced to Judy Barton as Madeline Elster again. And he's looking at her because and he's like di- freaking out. Um, <laughs> yeah, he is freaking out. And she's like, Go on got on that. S-
2: San Francisco,
0: And the way she walks out of the shadows is just like the way Rachel in 2049 walks it out is. of the shadows. It is. And her eyes are kind of uncertain. Like, do you love me? Do you love me? Or I I am what you want me to be, right? She's looking for his approval and he right. doesn't approve. And then there's a point in Vertigo, in Hitchcock's Vertigo, where he sees her coming down the hallway, but her hair is down, and it's all bleached mm-hmm. white, just like Madeline. And he mm-hmm. looks at her and he's disapproving and he goes, Your hair should be up. I told him your hair should be up. And she, you know, she kind of gets all emotional because she's not being accepted for who she is. At any rate, there's Again, just more parallels of a man like uh, yeah, there's so much there. There's so much to mm-hmm. discuss in later episodes, but there's, there's so much to unpack
2: about on. all of this. And and I I think it's important that we keep in mind and and I say this as the guy who just went on Wikipedia and read a an excerpt from the book of Job. I think it's important <laughs> to remember not to room 237 this whole thing that like, you know, like at a certain point these are just going to be kind of conspiracy theories, but you know what? Conspiracy theories are pretty enjoyable. and 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 the the idea that is that like we're talking about these themes in the first place because of this movie. So, like regardless of whether or not any of this is accurate, like, if these illusions are true or not, it's still a lot of fun to explore. and it's still being, you know, influenced by having seen this film. So so I, I think it's okay to go down these little rabbit holes, you know, mm-hmm. with the expectation that we're not necessarily trying to uncover some actual deep, true, hidden reality that, like, you know, we're just exploring this movie, um, very much in the way Kay is exploring the maze that he finds himself in.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: I, now, now that I'm, my pages, op- my uh, browser is open on this passage about Rachel. Uh, I just, my eyes are going reading. Like, for instance, <laughs> it says Rachel experiences a long period of barrenness. The infertility of the matriarchs has two effects. It heightens the drama of the birth of the eventual son, marking Isaac and Jacob and Joseph as special.
1: What, Joseph.
0: What, what is, yeah, Joe. what is, what is Joe called? You're special. You're special. Joe's special. And he was special, but even though he's dead now, from what we know, um, uh, he, know. he decided he was this, he might have been or might be the spark of a revolution
1: mm-hmm.
0: of the tide turning. Yeah. You
2: wow. know, what's funny. I know, I know we
1: mind talking, blown
2: yeah you, know, you better be bookmarking that shit jamie because we're going to talk about this okay but put, put that in our fucker bookmark, bookmark that shit <laughs> so you know we were talking about how michael green uh who has a great surname we were talking about how he felt that um that he was surprised that people thought k might have survived the film mm-hmm. um it, I, I have two quick thoughts on that One is that the first time I saw it, I definitely thought he survived. And it wasn't until my wife expressed incredulity that I would think that, that I was like, oh, maybe he died. The Second time I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, I guess he died. The third time I saw it, I I was like, okay, fine, he's dead. But I think that it is more in keeping with the tradition of these movies that it's unclear if he's alive or dead at the end of the movie. And I think that Michael Green's opinion about it, even though he did happen to write that scene – um, is in the grand scheme of things less important than it would be in a more traditional or more conventional or more linear or or less abstract Hollywood feature. Because the events of Blade Runner 2019, you know, as we know, have shifted over time so much. Like what, what our understandings are of these characters and these events have changed, not just because they've been recut so many times, mm-hmm. but because the the themes that are discussed and the actions that happen in these stories are already very ambivalent and very, very strange. And and very deliberately, um, you know, uh, uh, hard to come to direct answers on. And and part of what I think is so brilliant with 2049 is that it it only serves to heighten that aspect. You know, like there's it, it's even less clear exactly what's happening. It's even less clear exactly who's real and who's not. You know, like the most human character, I think, in 2049, and Ryan, I think you agree with me, is Joy. I mm-hmm. think Joy is like the the most human person in the whole thing. And she's like a sex VR bot that's, you know, bought and programmed <laughs> to, to just be, you know, obedient. And yet she is like the purest evocation of love I've seen in a film in, in years, you know? Yeah. And, and why I. Do you
0: th- that, why do you think that? Let me ask. Let me well, challenge all right, you on all right, all right. that. I want to challenge you on that. Why do you think she's – why is that – why does she say that to you?
2: Well, I and I want to I want to partially table this because I because I think uh, Micah especially has a lot of very interesting thoughts on this, and I think this is this is a whole other episode unto itself. Yeah. But but before, but well, Ryan, do you have anything you want to say about it?
1: I just think she's she seems to be throughout the film constantly yearning to to sh- express love and be loved. Programming. And um, and yeah, it, it, it could be programming.
0: <laughs> Does it, <laughs> it matter? Yes. But does it matter? It does it, not matter. Yes. You know, you know what it matters? Because men what? are programming it. Men are programming her to be subservient, to find completion and loving a man. That's her job. I don't buy it. I don't, I don't buy it. Not that I don't like her as a character. I don't know her as a character by the, by the time she was gone. I never even think about joy. I don't think about it because I feel even Kay says at some point, you don't have to say that to me. You know? Um, and then at the other time, she goes, oh, no, you're, you're, you're a woman born. Let's call you Joe. Let's call you Joe. Because that's what her program says. When he sees her on the bridge, you're a nice Joe. You know, I just, she's I thin. She, that, was really thin. that was it, it, really robotic.
1: That was really robotic on the bridge. And but with Joy, you really felt that this hmm. is someone yearning to be, to really know true love. I mean, then, hmm. what you know, all the replicants have been programmed. You know, what separates them then? You know, exactly. okay. Yeah, okay.
2: exactly. Yeah. K is acting on his programming too. So yeah. are you robbing him of any, of any notion of protagonism or here or being heroic? No, well, uh, right? let me challenge. Let me because challenge why? that. Cause he's a man. <laughs> no, <laughs>
0: no, let me challenge that.
1: Oh uh, when, snap. Uh, when,
0: <laughs> when they're looking at the records at wherever they're at, they're at uh, the LAPD office and he's got her in there and they're looking at, he's in the screen, which is a awesome piece of machinery, by the way, whoever yeah, built they- that thing. Um, and he, they're looking at all these G's and A's and T's, which of course at one point it spelled Gattaca, just, a, a, mm. a you know, but <laughs> it, it, it's the language of, it's the language of genetics. It's not the spelling of Gattaca. Anyways, mm. uh, Joy says, I'm only two numbers, zeros and ones. Um, and, uh, K makes a comment on that. She's very different. She's a a simulation. She's not living and breathing blood. She is a program. It's K isn't a program. K is What are we? What are we, Jamie?
2: That's the whole point of that whole thing. The whole point is that yeah. we are only four proteins. We are combinations of things that we have no control over that have yeah. been programmed into us by evolution and by time and by circumstance and by genealogy. And okay. we have No control over our own programming. Agreed. And yet it's what we do with that that makes
0: us heroic or that makes us loving or that makes us human. Okay. And I I will give you this. When she says, I want to go with you, but you have to break my antenna and I'm only going to live in this thing. And he's very hesitant and reticent to do that. That was to me was her breaking past her programming and saying, I'm beyond this now. I I have an understanding beyond this. She spoke to me at that point. Up until that point, I just and there's a difference when you are writing code and in that code that you're writing for whatever program or whatever, make sure you love them at all costs enter. And -hmm. that's how I see joy where it's different, where it's, where it's physiology and it's brains and cells and interlinked and, um, (laughs) (laughs) and all sorts of things, uh, that variation is far more possible. Whereas with computer programs, you know, you don't hear about, you know, someone's safari Messenger telling you that you lo- they love you. Because
2: yeah, because not... we haven't adapted programming that advanced yet. But, dude, at the end of the day, we are nothing but a series of chemicals. Like, like one of my favorite lines in Bioshock, which I know, Ryan, you're a similarly huge fan of. I love it. Is, yeah, yeah and, and, and Bioshock has, like, changed my life. And if you ever want to do a Bioshock episode of this thing, just tell yes. me. Yes. <laughs> one of my favorite lines in Bioshock is, love is a chemical. We yeah. give it meaning by choice. Yeah. And, and that, I, okay. me, is at the heart. Like, here, here, here's my thing briefly. Like, I had no control over whether or not I fell in love with my wife. When we met, I fell in love with her. You know, that was not because I made a choice to. It wasn't because I was noble. It wasn't because I had, it was because I loved her, because things in me drew me inexorably to loving things in her. And that was a programming thing. That was something I had no control over. Now by how who? I've. Con- my program by my evolutionary traits and by my parents meeting each other, by my grandfather how'd saying that going to a dance with my grandmother. How did I get that, there?
0: How to get there. My forces it... I have no control
2: over. Like God, maybe? We have no idea. Okay. But the point of the point okay. of the thing is that is but the point of it is that like I have no control over what my four proteins are building in my helical DNA structure, just like joy has no control over what sequence of zeros and ones she has within her. And you're right. When she breaks out of that emanator, when, uh, rather, when she breaks the antenna and goes into the emanator, knowing that that means that she's vulnerable, that is a moment of genuine heroic intent. Yes. I would agree. And, 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 I agree. But, but Jamie, but the whole, the whole point of her character is that everything leading up to that is supposed to be playing against that, right? Everything leading up to that, is setting her up for that heroic action like Mm -hmm. she's on a journey of her own right we meet her and she is this completely typical housewife right like she's this like this she she is exactly what they would have programmed her to be which is this like sexy 50s obedient housewife who Mm -hmm. like has dinner ready when you get home and dances in a cute skirt and did nothing all day but like think about you coming home right and then mm -hmm. and then look at where she goes from there Look yeah. at what she does. She becomes vulnerable. She, she, she finds a prostitute who's going to have sex with him so that she can sync with it to feel what it's like to experience love. Mm-hmm. She, knowing that Kay is in extreme danger because of this, what, what appears to be this revelation that he is the son of a, of a replicant. She chooses not to report him or not to do anything like that. She chooses to tell him, she gives him a name. She gives him a name. Mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. what a human thing is that she says. You are not a robot. You are not a replicant. You yeah. are a human. Mm-hmm.
0: You deserve this. And, and it's he- a re- it's a reflection of what Kay said to Love. He named you. You must be special. So yeah. then, when Joy finds that out, he names. She names him. Mm-hmm. Which
1: yes.
0: Is an interesting turn of events. I, I hear. You, I hear what you're saying. I just. She. I think she just rubbed me. And again, there was a moment where, when she broke out of her programming, that there was more reson, I there was more res re, resonation no, resonance—to um, her character. But at that point, she was so subservient and so like programmed. I just—it bugs well, me. what I, was it, K before that? I mean, before that,
2: K. I, I agree. I totally agree. He was constant yeah. K. Remember, he yeah. always nailed the baseline test. He always totally. came home with the right time. He always did his job. He got his bonus. Totally. Right. And I, there right? was and there it's was the a moment.
0: Thing. I agree. I agree. Um, K has more emotional re- resonance for me because K isn't a series of light, essentially. You know what I mean?
2: K isn't yeah, but just. That's how presumptuous that sounds! It, it's it's funny because 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 half of what you're saying is so progressive. Like you're saying that the problem is that she's like a woman programmed by men. I yeah, I agree. That's obviously problematic. But but there's this other part of what you're saying that I think is actually kind of retrogressive like like you're you're putting up a division between her and him simply because she con- is
0: constituted of different matter than he is, right? Well, I I I just think that there's a difference between essentially a photograph of a woman and a real woman. Like even when he meets um what's her name on the street? What's the the replicant's name he sleeps with? I can't remember Heronette. her name. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're good on all these names. I don't, I, don't... I, I I don't think they
2: say her name ever in the movie.
0: Uh, they might once, once, just, but right. I don't know. Yeah. Um. But when she meets him, she goes, and she hears the Peter and the Wolf thing. And she goes, "Oh, I see. You don't like real girls, right?" Um. Mm-hmm. And I, I totally. And that's what
2: you sound like. You sound like her right now.
0: No, but see, I totally agree with you that like really, my emotional resonance for Kay didn't happen because he's very stoic and subservient until that moment. Uh. Well, he's. Understanding maybe he's more important, maybe he's more important, maybe he's woman born, maybe he was born, maybe he wasn't made, um, all of these things. And then um, that replicant woman, the older one, says, you thought it was you. And uh, he thought, you know, the memory and him finding the toy and all that stuff, he thought it was him. And then you see a moment where he's disappointed, his heart is breaking, and I just kind of fell for him at that point in terms of feeling for him. Um and I didn't really make that connection with Joy. And I feel like there is a very there is a difference between a two-dimensional projection of a woman and a real replicant or a real woman. There's a difference. And I think and I I guess I would have to understand and I, I think part of what I'm saying comes from the ideas that replicants are engineered and they're all these things and they're bioengineered and all the stuff goes in to make them who they are, as mm-hmm. opposed to a series of numbers typed on a keyboard, enter. Um, I, I tend to... What's the word when you humanize something? Um, I mean, you can use the word humanize, but it's... Anthropomorphize. Anthropomorphize. I tend to anthropomorphize um, Rachel and Kay and Mary, Mary, Mariette... whatever her name Mariette and the rest... <laughs> more than i do a two-dimensional ser- series of light projected to and yet, you know th- consider consider this consider this
2: and i know this is becoming a whole separate episode that, that we should probably break <laughs> out into at some point and I, I, I and i love you for going toe-to-toe with me on this because i, I am not attacking you at no all. i know i know i love I just, this conversation for, for I love the it. sake for the sake of having an interesting conversation like consider this so k and ryan back me up on this k <laughs>
1: Is, is saying, I'm just, fire in, fire. I'm just enjoying this. <laughs> I'm, just, just uh, out. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna Yeah, out I did actually. I just popped some popcorn, <laughs> grabbed grab a soda. It was great,
2: right? All right, so K, so it takes Kay learning that he's special for him to act heroically. Mm-hmm. Is that not true?
1: Um, yeah, right, I think that does influence him, yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's it, right? Because before that, he aces the baseline test, he, he is like, you know. The, the only the only like hesitation that he shows is when he says, like, "I've never killed something with a soul before, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: but he still goes to do that, but he still goes out there. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and th- and that's it's only when he realizes that he can't. and then he realizes that uh, he finds the the sock and then he realizes the date on the tree matches the horse, and he puts all this together and he realizes that that could be him. And then, and then, he goes above and beyond his programming. Then Mm. he fails his baseline test. Then he stands up to Joshi. Right? Yeah. Joy, Joy doesn't need that. Joy from the beginning is saying you're special, you're different. And Jamie, you could say that's programming all you want, but I don't think it matters because what matters is what she says and what she does. What matters is her actions. You know, yeah. and whether or not she necessarily evinces agency over that from the beginning, I don't think matters. I think what matters is her function in this story is of the most human and most empathetic and most honest character. And if she was programmed that way, so be it. You know, I mean, yeah. like for example, like, I, I can show you. There's a great book by Sam Harris called Free Will, which you should read. And 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 it talks about whether or not we have any control over what we do. And 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 the 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 basic finding of it, spoiler alert, is that we don't. <laughs> Um, partly because, uh, there are studies that show that, that there are electronic impulses that make decisions for us before our brain can register that we're actually making that decision that like, that we have that parts of our lower brainstem that we have no control over are actually making decisions to do things like, for example, lift up our hand before we are, uh, cognitively aware that we're even doing it. So I would argue that we are nothing but ones and zeros. We are ons and offs, right? Hmm. Forget about the protein molecules, like, or about the 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 DNA helixes. like, like we are a series of of reactions that we don't have any control over, and that's why we always say, like, you know, in our heroes episode, heroes of science fiction, a perfect organism, you know, we talked about what makes a hero, and and a hero is not somebody who does the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. A hero because because we all we, we all do the right thing from time to time, like we all react to things. In uh, in whatever way we're set up to react to them, what makes yeah. us heroic is when we go against what makes sense, because it's the right thing to do. When mm-hmm. we when counteract our programming, mm-hmm. when we do something that is above and beyond what we are expected to do, because that shows an intent. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. t- before any of the other characters in this movie betray that sense of heroism, Joy does. Regardless mm-hmm. of how she gets there, I think Joy is is a is a, a really wonderful character that I, I can't wait to unpack more.
1: Yeah,
2: Do you
0: about
1: hmm. more episodes. I agree. I'll,
0: I'll yeah. leave. I'll leave it here. I this is what this is probably my conundrum with Joy, because <laughs> I don't because I don't know whether what she's doing is programmed or not. I don't know how to feel about it, and yeah. um and also, I think there's a reason that they, that the Wallace Company and the writers Fanter and Green wrote her to be kind of the typical fifties. I'm at dinner here's steak and French fries, you know, blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me as a, oh, well, I, don't, I won't use that term. For I, I, I'm very sensitive to the the issues, uh, the the issues that women struggle with, the issues that women deal with. I'm very sensitive to that, like hypersensitive to it, probably too much so, but whatever. Um, and so automatically, I, I'm like. I don't know how to feel about her already, and I think probably because there is a little bit of baggage with Blade Runner in terms of how Deckard treats Rachel, Rachel. and that kind of that <laughs> kind of that rapey love scene, sort of that kind of <laughs> historically, we're going to write a scene where a man roughs up a woman and then she wants to have sex with him. Right. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm on edge about that a little bit, and not that obviously he doesn't. Kay is very uh, soft and gentle with. Joy, I mean, so soft and so gentle, even when they're out in the rain, he can't mm-hmm. really feel her, but he's trying his best mm-hmm. to pret- pretend or to make her feel, or maybe it's making him feel that way, I don't really know, so, um, but I-, I think I'm just on hyper-awareness, and there have been some yeah. articles, which we yeah. will get into at a later point, I mean, it's a whole episode, there's a mm-hmm. whole, There's I think there's a series of two articles that talk about the role of the women in Blade Runner twenty. Yeah, there's enough great articles about that. And and, and we can we get into can that eventually. This, yeah. And I yeah. think but, there's but, but, the, but
2: I would I would I would only say that that I think you are supposed to feel because I did as well. You are supposed to feel weird about her being introduced as this 50s housewife. Like that's yeah. supposed to feel uncomfortable. You're yeah. supposed to go, "Oh god, this is really bad." Yeah. cuz right. cuz that's pretty evidently what that's for but it's it's the fact that she doesn't end up there you know it's Mm -hmm. the fact that she that she ends up completely transmogrified by her own hand you know
0: yeah and that to me
2: is heroism yeah Mm -hmm. i I, i'll
0: leave it at this there is one that one scene where she's telling him that he is special i feel like that scene resounds in the heavens to use neander wallace's term um (laughs) just in terms of who we we are as people yes and who we are as people and what we deal with in our waking living world. And the idea that I think a lot of what inhibits us to grow as people or to change or, or to, to be what we can be or what we are meant to be. Cause a lot of people don't even know that a lot of people don't even process that is to understand fundamentally that you are special. And I yeah, think that, moves. that was the jumping off point and that was what Kay needed to hear. And he heard it from something he shouldn't have heard it from. And right. so in that sense, in that regard, I think she was dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. And I think maybe my issues with Joy are more my issues with, I want to know what was going on in Hampton Vancher's head and Michael Green's head when they were writing her. Yeah. I, so, but that's fodder for another time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, that I just finished the popcorn. That was great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but this is why I fucking love
2: Blade Runner. I know! We could talk about this all night. This is so and, cool. And so, the next hey, time hey, we have your listeners. wife on... okay go ahead call in and give us shit to talk about and tell us what you're thinking about because, yeah. because this, is, this is what this show will live and breathe on, you know, mm-hmm. is this sort of conversation. So, so, so please get involved with this and, and call us or email us or send us messages on Facebook. Jamie, what were you saying?
0: No, I, I just, just in light of our conversation, which kind of pivots around gender a little bit and gender roles. Um, and the idea of, yeah, I, I, I know we're going to end this. I'm sorry, but I have to, I have to talk about this really quickly. What makes Rachel so powerful in Blade Runner 2049 is her potential, or beyond potential, her ability to create life, which is something that man, man has no control over. That is wh- that is what gave her power. That is what gave her power over everything. That is what Tyrell was trying to get. That's what Neander was trying to go after. That power of creation that only women hold. Right. Um, and it was all these men trying to recapture it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you look, and I'm I'll mention this really briefly because i know it's a hot hot topic but if you look at women today that power for creation is still highly controversial as yeah. uh, in terms of mm-hmm. who should control that and how they control it so right. to me that's the through line like rachel is god rachel is goddess in this rachel mm-hmm. has achieved something unimaginable
1: um, yeah
2: so yeah there we go yes <laughs> a, a, a nice minor point to end
0: the episode on <laughs> this is the most fun episode i've we've had f- f- in, in terms of in, in my opinion i love this stuff i love discussion mm-hmm. yeah me too Th- and thank thank you
2: for uh for engaging with me on it and, and for knowing that like you know that like it it's sometimes it's it's fun to to unpack things aggressively and enthusiastically because it's like you know it's what this material calls for you know yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and um yeah i can't wait to hear what our listeners have to say
0: awesome
1: yeah for sure call
0: us Well, guys, (laughs) thanks for talking. Thanks for listening, everybody.
2: Thanks, guys.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. All right.
0: find out more about shoulder of orion the blade runner podcast please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com shoulder of orion is available for listen or download through apple itunes google play and TuneIn radio if you'd like to join in the discussion please join our official facebook discussion group fields of calantha a blade runner discussion group